0: To write down any questions at the end that you would like to ask Dr. Lamb. Now you can just raise your hand and ask your question. But if you know if you're not quite sure if you want to be identified with your question, um, just hold your card up, and one member of our a member of our team will pick it up uh, and um, g- give it to Dr. Lamb. Also, there is a comment card that is very helpful for we pl- uh, in our planning for future speakers in the Changing the Conversation series. So uh, there will be baskets uh, passed at the end of the presentation uh, for your comment card. So please be sure to um, complete that. Refreshments tonight are sponsored by the Ohio State University LGBTQ alumni community, Scarlet and Gay, and are served by our group, Spectrum. Uh, Also, I'd like to thank everybody Uh, from the resource tables and please stop by the resource tables uh, before you leave tonight. With that I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Howard Fratkin to introduce Ling Lam.
1: Thank you John. Welcome to everybody. Uh, Pete and I have had the honor of uh, hosting Ling uh, since Friday morning. It feels like we've been with him for for four or five days, just because it's just been such a rich experience. Not because he's a difficult person, actually. He's, <laughs> <laughs> he's delightful and charming and, and funny and witty. Uh, so I know that, that you're going to have a good experience. Uh, he's been really busy this weekend already. Uh, he did a full three hour uh, workshop, four hour workshop uh, Saturday morning on uh, couples. It was called uh, I Love You Go Away. Uh, which was really interesting. he talked a lot about neurobiology and, and psychology and and child development and all sorts of things, so it was really helpful. Everybody really like was like, "Wow, this applies to me. I can like figure out how to do this so that was really cool. and then he gave both sermons this morning, if you weren 't here for those, uh, and he 's doing this tonight, and then tomorrow the Ohio Psychological Association has asked him to do a uh, six hour workshop on complex trauma. Now, this kind of mirrors how Ling lives his life in San Francisco, where he teaches uh, part-time at Santa Clara University, and he works part-time at Google, and he has a private practice. And in between that, he uh, plays with his cat Frodo, and he binges on Project Runway and RuPaul's Drag Show. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Ling uh, came to, sometimes psychologists start out being psychologists, and sometimes we come in a different way. I came through being a recreational, therapeutic recreation specialist, and Ling actually was an engineer first. Now, how many of you know what a HDMI is? A few of you, okay, good. Well, Ling was part of the team that actually invented the HDMI. It's the thing that that practically every uh, camera, computer, they all have HDMI plugs. And he told us a story of how (coughs) He worked for a company that had such exquisitely talented management that they made millions and millions of dollars so that he could then retire and become a psychologist. No, that's not really true, actually. (coughs) They actually were so talented that they didn't make hardly any money at all. (coughs) So he said, okay, forget engineering. I want to do something that has more meaning. And so he became a psychotherapist, and uh, (coughs) like I said, he's full of great information and Fascinating, enjoyable man, and I know you're gonna enjoy Ling's talk tonight. So let's welcome uh, Dr. Ling Lam.
2: Okay. Um, <laughs> thank you, Howard. <laughs> so first of all, I want to get a sense of, uh, bu- Uh, First, I want want to get a sense of, is this on? Okay, it's on. And second of all, I want to get a sense of how many of you were here for either of the sermons this morning? Okay, because that gives me a sense of how many jokes I can recycle. (laughs) So usually I'm a fairly environmentally friendly presenter. I do recycle some jokes. So if you have heard some of the jokes from this morning, um, feel free to laugh again. Okay, um, so my intention for today, I think for the first 40 minutes or so, is to really pre- share a little bit about my personal journey, as well as present an overall framework to look at pain, shame, and resilience, especially through the lens of the experience of LGBTQI plus people at the intersection of religion and spirituality. But my heart is, I really hope the last 30 minutes or so of today, uh, that we can really have a dialogue and conversation um, so that we can really um, sort of, uh, for me to hear more about where you are, what kind of curiosity that you have, and for us to meet on that personal level. Okay, so that's my intention. So let me share a little bit about myself and maybe uh, <laughs> set the record straight on a few things. Uh, I did casually mention that um, I was surprised when one day I started watching uh, RuPaul's Drag Show and Project Runway. Uh, this is like two years ago. I was very behind on these things. I'm still on Games of Thrones season three right now, so don't <laughs> tell me what has happened since then. Uh, do not tell me what has happened since then. I do not want to know. Um, but. I, I do find myself really addicted to uh, those two shows. I don't know why. I think they are doing a really good job on um, hooking our attention. So I want to share a little bit about myself. I was born in China, and, and, I, and I grew up in Hong Kong. I mean, I, I, my family moved to Hong Kong when I was three years old. At that time, Hong Kong was a British colony, and they really discriminated against people from China at that time. People from China were seen by the government of Hong Kong as very uncivilized, very backward, and then we are definitely second-class citizens. And I still remember as a young child, Every year, I have to wake up at 4 a.m. and line up for hours at the immigration office in order to renew our visa to stay in Hong Kong. And lots of memories about how the immigration officers will yell at us, really is quite, can be quite an abusive environment. And also that even though ethnically, people in Hong Kong and people in China are both Chinese in ethnicity, But there's a lot of also discrimination uh, on a personal level at that time about people from China. So I remember, and also the dialect is completely different. Even though both are dialects of Chinese, it might as well be French and Tibetan. I was struggling to come up with the second one. That would be very different from French. But I think Tibetan should be different enough from French, right? Anybody speak both French and Tibetan? that can verify that fact. Okay, (laughs) all right. So if you don't know, then I will present it as a, yeah. So, and I remember there's all these incidents early on where students, other students would make fun of me. I remember this one time. I was probably six years old on a school bus, and there is this older boy who peeked into my pants and then announced to the whole bus that Ling is wearing a pink underwear. And I don't even remember how I reacted, but probably quite traumatic. I do have to clarify that I wasn't wearing a pink underwear, in case any of you is wondering, okay? And I wasn't wearing a pink underwear because my fashion sense really developed later. And concurrent with these initially quite difficult experiences, I also started when I was probably six or seven, had uh, initial sense that there's also other things that are different about who I am. I didn't quite have the language to grasp or even begin to articulate or even frame to myself what it is, but I just noticed there is this emerging sense of being different. I still remember when I was in elementary school, uh, I <laughs> semi-embarrassing, um, don't judge me. <laughs> but I remember as a boy in elementary school, there are all these prefects, which are like hall monitors, who are basically responsible for discipline during the breaks uh, in school. And I remember there's this one particular older boy who is a prefect, that just really caught my attention. He was, I was fascinated by him. And I was too shy to do anything. I didn't even know what that means or anything. I was six years old. But I just have this fantasy as a six-year-old, that I, as I was lining up, getting ready to go back to the classroom, as this hall monitor is walking by, this is my childhood fantasy sequence. As he was walking by, I would casually just shrug, and I would accidentally touch him, and then I would say, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, hi. (laughs) (laughs) So from a very young age, I had this emerging sense that I was different without having any way to sort of describe it or understand it. But somehow I just knew from the environment that I was in, from the media, from a lot of things that are not quite said explicitly, but I just knew whatever it is called that I was dealing with, it is not acceptable. It is not safe to tell other people about this. I didn't even know how I got that idea, but we all exist in a cultural context. And in that cultural and social and political context, there are some dominant stories. And one of the dominant stories is there's something wrong with LGBTQI plus people. Isn't that one of the dominant stories that we swim in as we live in society? And I think somehow I just absorbed that dominant narrative and I started believing that this is something unacceptable. There is something wrong with me. It's kind of like if you swim in stinky water long enough, you begin to stink. And we do swim in waters that sometimes are quite stinky. That's not of our making. If any of you do not believe what I just said, I suggest you take a field trip. I can recommend a few places you can swim in stinky water and you can (laughs) check it out afterwards. But if you swim in stinky water long enough, you begin to stink. Does that make sense? Like you absorb what's in the environment and it becomes part of you. So that's what happened. That there's something deeply wrong, both because I'm different from other boys, also that I was bullied and other people really show a lot of discrimination and rejection because of my other group membership, which is an immigrant from China to Hong Kong. But I was a reasonably smart kid, so I figured out Early on, okay, if being, in retrospect, being gay, I just didn't have that word, right? I was actually grew up in a school that are very, very, um, how do I say? Um, they do not do sex ed- education in my schools. L- let me give you another, another stream of my life before I come back to how I navigate the LGBTQI plus issue in my life. I grew up in an atheist family. Um, However, my parents sent me to Christian schools all my life. That's interesting. Uh, Unless you... I don't know if it's obvious, but I grew up in an Asian family. Okay? (laughs) So... And my parents, being quite typical Asian parents, they really care about me going to good school and doing well academically. And the good schools are the Christian schools in Hong Kong. So I spent, even though I my family is atheist, I spent three years in a Catholic school, four years in a Methodist school, and six years in an Anglican school. I have experienced all of it. But I never quite believed because Scripture and Bible study. We have Bible study classes. That for me is just an ECA. It helped me improve my GPA. That rhymes. Okay, let me say it again. That Bible study classes is just an ECA and it helped me improve my GPA. All right. Um, So good, good deal. Okay, you don't have to study hard and you get a higher GPA. Because you know what? At that time, I really struggle with a sense of there's something wrong with me. At some point, all the experiences of rejection, all the experiences of I'm different in a way that I cannot describe in word, at some point, I move from I am not loved to I am not lovable. Very small jump, you change just a few letters, but it does make a huge difference, doesn't that? Isn't that true? Because if you are n- not loved, If you just change to a different environment, you can still be loved. But if you start believing that there's something broken and flawed about who you are and that you are not lovable, that oppression goes with you anywhere that you are. For example, I live in San Francisco, and I'm a therapist, and I have worked with clients who are LGBTQI+. They grew up in small town, conservative Midwest or the South, and they have moved to San Francisco for many years, but that internalized sense of there is something wrong with me, which may manifest as a deep sense of emptiness, a sense of longing, a sense of self-loathing, self-harming behavior, addiction issues, dysregulated emotions, unstable relationship, dot, 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 dot. Once you internalize and absorb the stinky water that we swim in, the oppressor goes with us anywhere that we go for the rest of our lives. So when I made the jump from I'm not loved to I'm not lovable, then I have to figure out some way to deal with that. Because it's so painful to be in the place where you know nobody would love you. Right. I still remember as a child, in retrospect, this is very worthy of therapy, although I, have, I didn't go to therapy until way later. And by the way, I had a really bad first experience, which I'll tell you about later. But when I was a child, remember, I would have these fantasies as a child, which is I would look up at the sky and I would imagine myself flying to a far, far away planet. And I would land on the planet and I would open my mouth and try to speak and no sound would come out. That's this recurring dream-like fantasy that I have. Notice the themes of loneliness, isolation, not having a voice to really describe. Your experience—it's right? very symbolic. Of course, you can also look at it from a physics perspective. In outer space, there's no air, and you need air to transmit sound. Of course, without air, you can't transmit sound. That's the physics part of that fantasy. But <laughs> anyway, so um, so as I struggle with fearing that I'm not lovable and there's something wrong with me, I decided to develop. A strategy to deal with that and my strategy is I will shut down all my social life. I really don't know how to be social for a long time. I was very awkward socially. I was very shy. I remember in my family whenever there are visitors I would literally hide in my room for hours and then my parents have to like force me to come out and meet the visitors. That's how shy I was. So I study. right? I guess when we are faced with situation where we have to find a way towards being accepted, that we all find whatever way that we can in order for us to feel a sense of inclusion and belonging, right? Some of us may be through athletics, like
1: <laughs>
2: as an expert gym goer. I want I could have gone that route, but I didn't. But uh, so for me, is to Really, really study hard, get A-pluses and A's, be the best student, and that's my way to deal with everything, including that I was gay and I don't know how to deal with it, I don't know how to, I don't really have many friends, difficult family situation, bullying, dot, dot, dot. I just deal with it all by trying to study hard and hopefully studying hard is going to cover up everything and just make me happy. That's my hope, right? at least it's something that I'm good at, that I can point to and say, look at my transcript. Don't you see I have some value? Don't you see I'm good at studying? Don't you see? Does that make sense? It's that I carry around this personal billboard with me. I know you won't love me for who I am. My hope is that you will look at my 30-page resume (laughs) single-spaced, <laughs> double-sided, with a font size 2. <laughs> then maybe you will respect me and like me. Does that make sense? That is my survival strategy. And we all have different kinds of survival strategy. For some of us, is to be very empathetic and not say no ever and take care of everybody else around us. For some of us is to study very hard, for some of us is to uh, walk out really hard and post pictures on Instagram that barely meet the community guideline. And then when we get 5,000 likes, that's our sense of worthiness. Right? We all need a sense of worthiness. It's too painful to live in that space of shame, where we sit in the pool, where we hate ourselves, where we doubt whether anyone would really love us for who we are. It's so painful that we all find some way out of it. Does that make sense? The whole thing that I just shared with you replay itself when I left Hong Kong and came to the U.S. for university. I have never visited the U.S. before freshman orientation in California. Up to that point, my knowledge of California is 90210. (laughs) Which is a huge mistake, because I went to school in Northern California, and so in October, one month after I arrived, my dorm organized a trip to the beach in Northern California, and my image of California is 90210. I didn't realize it's Southern California, so I wear a T-shirt and short and caught a coat <laughs> on that beach trip. But anyway, and I again feeling this sense of alienation and uh, loneliness, because I have never lived apart from my uh, family. I is a new language, new culture, new everything. So I find myself again using my survival strategy of studying very hard, except this time, I noticed that... Is beginning to not work as well as before." You know, for a long time as a child growing up, when I was experiencing a lot of, in retrospect, depression, a high anxiety suicidal thought that I remember since I I was a child, for a long time I gave myself hope by convincing myself, if only I study hard, tomorrow will be better. Uh, If I'm able to come to the U.S., maybe it will be better. If I get that award, maybe it will be better. Do you know what I'm talking about? Sometimes the things that we hold in our mind to give us a sense of hope to keep going. It's kind of like this bar in Ireland where there is a sign outside the door of this bar that says, free drinks tomorrow. There's always a tomorrow. And in retrospect, you know what? I'm glad. I'm glad that I had that strategy that can help give me a sense of hope, so I survive. Isn't that right? It does extract a heavy price, emotionally and psychologically, but it did help me survive. So it's kind of like a credit card. What saved us earlier, the strategy that we use to protect us from the vulnerability and insecurity, what saved us earlier we pay the price for the rest of our life if we don't start working on ourselves. Does that make sense? So I was very depressed in freshman year, and then some friends started inviting me. Well, this it. actually, let me give you in the right order. Then I decided at this point that I am going to see a therapist on campus. Until this point, I have not shared with anyone that I'm gay. So I went to see a counselor. And for the first three sessions, I didn't talk about anything important (laughs) because I want to say, is it a safe space? So by the end of the fourth session, in the last five minutes, I decided I'm gonna come out to her and she will be the first person in the entire world. So I wrote, I couldn't even bring myself to say the word gay. That's how repressed I was. By the way, I also lived in San Francisco for seven years without having a gay friend. In case you doubt how good I am in repression and (laughs) hiding and Isolating myself. (laughs) Anybody can beat that? (laughs) (laughs) But so when I decided at the end of the fourth session to write down the word homosexuality on a piece of paper, I fold it three times and I give it to her. I still use this example in my personal life to teach my students what not to do as a students who are studying to be therapists. My therapist looked at that piece of paper, and she said, oh, and then there's a pause. And then she said, I don't specialize in working with this issue. But there is a specialist in our counseling center who really specializes in working with LGBTQ issues. And I'll refer you to him. She probably come with good intention, but let me tell you how I felt. is like, oops, should have never done that again. So I went back into the closet. It will be another few years before I finally came out to myself and the world. In the interim, some friends invited me to go to church. If you are here this morning, this is, you heard this part, which is, God did not make me a morning person. So for the first three months, I fell asleep in every single church service. Forgive me, God. But then eventually I became a Christian. There was actually uh, quite a profound spiritual experience that I shared this morning. But I became a Christian. But here's the complication. I got baptized in a very conservative Southern Baptist church. What's the problem? Is there a problem? I mean, <laughs> What's going on? I see a reaction. I'm confused. Did I say something that... Should I repeat myself? Okay, so I got baptized in a very conservative Southern Baptist church which introduced complications along the way. But before I share with you the second half of the journey, I do want to come back and share a very brief framework to look at pain, shame, and resilience that I think is really helpful In reframing, well, it has, I'm not going to talk about you and your experience, because I don't know, I hope it will be helpful to you, but it has helped me reframe some of the painful experiences that I have in a way that allow me to derive meaning from it. So let's talk a little bit about pain and shame first, and then we'll talk about resilience. Pain. What causes pain? Audience participation segment. A burn. Sorry? A, burn. A, a bird? A burn, a burn yes. That's physical pain, right? Birds can cause pain too if they drop something <laughs> on your... <laughs> loss. So, so, loss, yeah? Loss. Grief and loss, right? Betrayal. 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 Rejection. Oh. Cruelty hate yeah shame. shame so there are several categories of things that cause pain category number 1 things that shouldn't happen but did happen these include abuse neglect assault hate crimes people with acts of cruelty towards other people acts of betrayal between partners, between friends, and the worst part is from parents betraying kids. And haven't you heard stories about LGBTQI kids and youth when they came out or found out by their parents got kicked out? That is a deep sense of betrayal. So things that shouldn't happen but did happen, that category. And then there's a whole category of shame, English is my second language, so excuse me. Okay, let me start this sentence again. So the second category is things that should happen but didn't. When a child is in a family, they should be welcomed and loved for who they are. Their parents should create a space to just delight in getting to know them, So they feel safe. They can just figure out their own path and develop based on who they are. There should be, soci- in society, there should be acceptance and equality and create a space where no matter what's your gender, identity, sexual orientation, race and ethnicity, social economic status, country of origin, migration status, ability, disability, you should feel safe and valued and honored as a full member of society. But just because it should happen doesn't mean it did happen. Right? That's the second rule. Either things that shouldn't happen but did, and things that didn't happen but should.